You're listening to the Thousand Hills Podcast. Today we'll be continuing our study through the book of Galatians in Galatians chapter 5 as we read about the freedom that Christians experience through the love and grace of Jesus Christ. We're going to be opening up to Galatians chapter 5 and the title of this is In Faith Through Love. We're going to go over like the first half of chapter 5 and that's what we're going to be focusing on. In faith through love. So let's go ahead and start the text, and then we'll kind of get to that point and dissect what that really means. So let's go to verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Again, a yoke, guys, is what they would put on the neck of an ox, right? To pull their plows, to pull their carts, things like that. Like, how many of us have seen, like, the Oregon Trail video game? (laughs) And you have, like, these two cows pulling your cart. They were yoked, right? It's this burden. It is this load. It is this thing where you have to push hard and move forward. And it is this constant reminder that you're dragging something behind you. And you have to be better and push harder and move faster, right? The Bible is telling us to let those things go. Christ has set us free, not to be looking over our shoulder and wondering if we're good enough or holy enough, not to be looking over our shoulder and wondering if we're doing a good enough job, but to have a spirit of freedom, to have relief. How many of us have looked forward to a day of school or a day on the job and just been like, oh my God, I'm going to hate this. It's finals week. This is the last day I'm gassed or this huge shipment of stuff came in and I have to sort it all and number it. Brian, you know all about that, right? Or I know that there's this customer walking through the front doors and they're going to make a big deal out of everything or my boss has been in a bad mood and their favorite sports team lost last night and now he's going to take it out on all of us, right? There's times where we walk in burdened. We walk in like, ah. And when we make it through, or when that person's not in a bad mood, or when that final ends up being super easy, or when we clock out of that day, how does that feel? It's just relief. It's just, oh, you're free at last. You no longer have to worry about that. You got that grade you needed. You finished that shift you had to do, right? Now you get to go and enjoy your weekends. That's what Christ wants us to feel in our relationship with him. He's not setting down more rules and adding things to our lives for us to have to carry and worry about. He's trying to remove those standards that we put on ourselves. He's trying to be good enough on our behalf so that we don't have to feel that way, right? This is our challenge on one side. It's easy to know in our heads that we are free to follow Christ in that freedom, but oftentimes, in moments in our lives, we retake on that yoke. We re-burden ourselves, right? We start to worry about what the people around us think, about how we look or how we act or how we sound. We start to worry about whether or not we're coming off the way we want to, to others. A quick story about this. I had a woman come and visit our church, and she comes by sometimes. And uh, I was away from the church, off the clock, and she saw that uh, I have a tattoo. I have multiple tattoos. And uh, she steps over and she's like, oh, hi. I was like, hey, how you doing? She's like, so do you just not know the Bible or, or do you not care that God says not to have tattoos? I was like, well, number one, no, you're wrong. Number two, why would you start the conversation like that? Are you stupid or are you dumb? Like, it's quite a choice you've given me here. And I was just taken aback because of the way this woman came in so violently. 
There was no need for that. There was no like, oh, you might want to think, or have you considered, or can you tell me the story of white? Nothing. Just are you stupid, or are you just disrespectful? And it causes me now, when I see this person, to actually, even though I'm very confident in my tattoos, and the reason I have them, and I have a good biblical case for why I can have them, I still feel this need sometimes to like, kind of like turn away or when the person does come, kind of be like, hi, and kind of like worry about what's about to happen. There is this weight on me, again, this thought process of I wonder what this person's thinking about me. I wonder if this person thinks I'm good enough. We need to let that stuff go. Again, it's really easy to know that. It's really hard to do that when the moments come. There's a temptation for us to conform to the standards and expectations of those around us, Right? Richie sometimes comes over and hangs out. And if you're in a group of guys who all really love this sport that you don't care about, well, you might just be tempted to fake. Yeah, that guy, that team, woo, ball, you know? If I'm around a group of people who's really knowledgeable about something, there might be a, a big pressure on me to try to make it look like I have the same knowledge or passion that they have. When I'm around a group of people, I may feel the pressure to look, sound, act, think like they Sound, look, act, think. And that's not what Christ has given us. Christ has not given us pressure from the outside to try to conform. He's given us freedom. So when we're looking through this book, there's a pressure on the Galatians. There's a pressure to conform to a certain set of practices, right? What Paul is telling them is that if we rely on that version of truth where we have to earn being good enough, earn our salvation, then we are doomed. It is here and throughout the book of Galatians that he tells us that, but he adds a linchpin to this whole understanding of what grace is, what the law is, and what good enough actually should be. In verse 2, we see this. He says this, Mark my words. It means take notice of what I'm saying. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Verse 3. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. And in verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And let's leave that up there for me, Corey. What he is saying is, if you allow yourself to try to look good enough, in this case, again, these people who were pressuring the Galatian church were trying to get them to conform to a set of actions as if that would make them holier. One in particular was circumcision. He's saying that if you feel like you need to go out and do this action, if you are going to allow them to convince you that you need to chase works-based righteousness, you need to try to look, act, sound good enough, then you are pushing Jesus away. It says you have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And I love that last little bit. Fallen away from grace. When we talk about someone falling from grace, we oftentimes use it incorrectly. When I say fallen from grace, what do you guys think of? I think of a pastor's kid who's supposed to be all that in a bag of chips, who looks the right part and everything, and then you find out, like, oh yeah, he smokes drugs on the weekends. You're like, wow, I mean, he, he looks so good, but I guess he's just a huge sinner. What a fall from grace. Or you hear about a pastor, right, who makes a mistake, and they're like, wow, I thought he was a good person. What a fall from grace. He, I used to think he was cool, but I guess he's just trash. That's not the way the Bible uses it, because again, that is an economy of good enough. 
That is the economy of you should be what I think you are. And oftentimes we put people on pedestals, right? We put people at unrealistic standards that they could never meet and we could never meet. No one can ever meet. And yet we expect them to stay there. We expect them to be perfect and faultless. We expect them to never make a mistake. That's not what the Bible says when it says falling away from grace. In fact, Paul tells us falling away from grace isn't when you have areas of your life that need work but rather when you fully reject grace from your life because you're so good at having it together that you no longer see a need for Jesus' atoning sacrifice. You think that you have it so together. You think that you're the real deal. You think that you really are as good as everyone says you are to the point that you're like, yeah, Jesus died for me? Cool, but I didn't really need that because I'm a pretty good person. God loves me just for who I am. Nothing else. I don't need anything else to try to be good enough because I'm already just good enough. Don't these other people wish they were as good as me? It's a delusion. It's a sad, sad thing to buy into. And I love it. There's this band called As Cities Burn that I think perfectly illustrates this point. They have an album called Come Now Sleep. And their song, The Horde, they really like summarize this really well. And I always loved it because they sing it really ironically. They sing it backhandedly and I'm kind of like, yeah. And it says this. They say, good boys walk straight on white lines and good boys keep their livers clean and smoke out of their lungs they don't drink or smoke because it's all about what you've done good boys don't make mistakes to learn from and grace when you make your way to the well to those who deserve it because after all they've earned it it's in vain it's in vain because they don't need it saying that, yeah, grace will go to those who have earned it, but they don't really need it because they're already good enough. You're going to ignore all the people who came up short, who weren't what others expected them to be. You're going to ignore them because they're not really good enough to deserve what you want to give them. No, the good people are going to get what you want to give them, but they're not really going to need it because they're already there. They're already super holy, right? It says they're steady breathers. In other words, they're calm, who don't lift a finger for the gasping weaker. They don't try to help those who are falling, those who are hurting, those who actually need. They just hoard their hollow completion like it's something wearing thin, like it's gonna get them what they want when heaven comes. In other words, they think that their acts, they think that the things that they do, the things that make them seem so good to others will be enough when they come face to face with God. As if they are righteous and holy enough to stand before God and say, here I am, you're so lucky to have had me. It's this calloused perception in the life of these people pressuring the Galatians and oftentimes today in our churches that leads so many people to walk away. That leads so many people to disregard what is said in the four walls of a church. Because this is the mentality of so many Christians. A fall from grace is when you think you deserve God's mercy and God's blessing, but only because, again, you've earned it. That comes across so bitterly to other people. I love it. Somebody uh, posted up something about uh, a type of Christian. And this is not to offend anybody, but um, there's a group called Calvinists. And they're very smart Christians on, uh, oftentimes, and they're very learned. Um, the only problem is that a lot of times they come across very cocky. And so somebody put up a picture of that, and they're like, John Calvin, it says Calvinism. When simply saying you're good enough, isn't enough for you. Oh, and simply saying you're better than others isn't enough for you. And so it's basically like, now you have to prove it. Oftentimes, that's how it comes across in Christians in general. We walk into society, we walk into rooms with other people, and we put on this act like, 
We're just something supernatural, so holy, so much better than everyone else because we wear collared shirts that have buttons on them versus a skater brand t-shirt or because, you know, just name the thing. So oftentimes we think that that is where our value lies instead of our relationship with Jesus. Verse five, it says this, for through the spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. And that's kind of a little bit backwards talk, but what it's saying is instead of this prideful spiritual attitude of thinking that you are enough, Paul instructs us to wait and not lose sight of the fact that our salvation, our hope was never based on being good enough. Instead, we live our lives knowing that it is by the blood of Jesus that we've been cleared of our sins. And because our faith in Jesus' words and promises, we have hope now that we will be counted as righteous when we meet God. In other words, just like Gideon, it was never about what we could do or what we knew. It was about who was helping us, who was behind us, who we were following. And in verse 6, it says this, and this is the linchpin of the text. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcised nor uncircumcised has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I'm going to read that again. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, this is basically what a lot of Christians, including myself, have built our entire faith on. Our entire relationship with Jesus revolves around this. So I'm going to gush about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> My whole life I've seen churches respect so many other things that don't matter, that have nothing to do with faith. Again, they hold the doors open for people who look a certain way, act a certain way, sound a certain way. Those who appear like they should belong in a church, right? They hold cultural appeal or generational appeal, right? Those who are attractive, things like that. But those are so far from what we should be valuing. We are told the only thing that counts here is faith expressing itself through love. What does that mean? So many of us have been guilty of not pairing these two things together in our lives that Paul says divides what matters and what doesn't matter, right? It means that you're not called as Christians. I'm sorry. It means you're not called as Christians. It should be. It means your number one concern isn't appearance or appeal. It is the motivation of your actions and the delivery of your actions. In other words, why do you do what you do and how do you actually do it? That should be what you're looking at. Those are the two things to weigh when you move outside of, you know, yourself. In other words, our actions should be born out of our faith, meaning that I am to live out my faith. If I believe certain things, it should affect the way that I act and speak and look and treat others, right? Again, if I look at a house that's on fire and truly believe that that fire will harm the people inside, how am I going to act? A little desperate, a little crazy. I might knock on the door, throw a rock through the window, yell, make sure the people aren't there or are awake, right? Might even kick the door down if I hear someone ask for help. That's not actions that I would take if I didn't truly believe that there was actually a threat there, right? How many of us have a dog at home? Real question. One, no, yes? Is that it's a maybe? Yes, 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 yes. Have your dogs ever thought there was somebody there when there wasn't someone there? What do they do? What, is, what does Chester do? He just freaks out. My chihuahua will literally like, and she's like, run off. And I'm like, it's like 11.30 at night. My kid's asleep. Please don't. And she doesn't care because she heard a noise. 
And maybe there's a deer there and I just can't see it, but I don't think there's actually a threat outside, especially if it is a deer. That threat is only to her because they will stomp her out, not me. So when I hear that going on, that dog reacts in a certain way because even if there is no threat, it truly believes there is. It is acting on its faith in the fact that there is something really there that can harm us. It's trying its best to protect us. It is feeble and annoying, but it is trying to do the right thing to the best of its ability, right? So there's something in that for us. Again, our actions should be informed by what we truly stand on and believe. So in other words, if I truly believe that sin leads to death, as the Bible tells us, then I should be trying to tell people in my sphere of influence to stay as far away from it as possible. Not just shrug and say, well, it's their life. It's up to them. Go ahead. I'm not going to look at the house that's on fire and be like, I mean, they probably have smoke detectors, but if not, you know, they chose to die by a fire. Good luck, guys. I will truly be concerned for them, right? But that's not enough. That's oftentimes where a lot of people cop out and say, well, it's just because I believe this that I acted this way. And there's like these horrific things, right? These crazy things. Again, nine out of 10 Christians who are nuts, just totally crazy people, you bag full of cats. They're the people standing on the fact that they're like, well, no, because this is wrong. So I need, I need to do something about it. Okay, great. But what you're doing is you're lighting a house on fire. Why are you, what? Again, we read stories in the Bible about people like tying foxtails together and putting like torches between them and sending them out to crop fields. Like that was not the right action. No matter what you believe, I'm sorry. And so often today we see the same thing. Well, I thought your kid was going to get hurt. Well, why'd you scream at them? They're going down the slide. Chill. Other mom, chill. We see that in the church. There's this group of people who are just like the perfect example of it. So I'm not even going to go anywhere else. But they're called Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just the worst. I was like, um, if, I, <laughs> if I saw you in a t-shirt said that, probably just smoke on sight. We'll just fight. And <laughs> sorry, maybe, maybe you were good with that. I don't know, Lord. Um, <laughs> but they are famous for, for doing something, holding signs. Doesn't sound crazy, but that's what they're famous for. They're famous for doing things like showing up to fallen servicemen and women's funerals, somebody who's died in the military, with signs that says, pray for more dead soldiers, or thank God for dead soldiers. And they're outside the fence of where this woman or man, this family is grieving the loss of a loved one who fell in the line of duty. It's sick. It's twisted. These people go out of their way to try to incite a violence towards them and laugh at people or to try to push them into wanting to fight. These people walk around with signs that say things like God hates gays, but they don't use the word gays because that's far too polite. They hold up signs and walk around and say things like God hates you. God sent the shooter. Thank God for 9-11. Things like this. They may say that their actions are informed by their faith, that they truly believe what is on these signs. But what's the second half of what the Bible tells us? That it should be expressed through love. This cannot be misconstrued as love. This is violent. This is foul. This is sinful. These are the people who are more bad off spiritually than anyone else you'll encounter. Because they have come to read the Bible only to try to find out who to attack and who to hate. They miss out in this whole second half of this scripture. They tear whole books out of the Bible that talk about how to treat others, how we are to try to win the lost, and instead resort to this pathetic 
pitiful stuff. That is not who we are to be. Our job is to understand that those around us need something and to administer it into their lives with genuine, gentle tact. I've, I, I visualize a surgeon. When a surgeon opens somebody up, that can be a very harsh action. So what do they do? The anesthesiologist puts them under. Try to make it gentler on their body so that they don't feel the pain and have to react to this. They take sharp tools that they could use to hurt this person badly and they try to cut away sickness or open and inspect things to try to see if they can get out a cancer or a you know, gallstone or something like that that'll hurt this person. This surgeon can do a massive amount of damage with the information that they have and the tools they've been handed, but their job is to gently, lovingly help this person. That is not what we get from these people. But that is our job. Our job is to use the Bible to try to find out what this person needs and to try to help administer it lovingly. To try to take the time and take the steps to help them understand that we care about them. That's why we're trying to help them be healed, to be liberated or freed from a death sentence that we all carry and made whole through the love of Jesus and to try to leave them free of sickness, free of that illness that haunts us all and as unharmed as possible. If our actions aren't filtered through God's love for the lost, then we are failing regardless of how factually right we might be. Again, a lot of Christians treat faith like politics. When we hear people on the TV or the radio say that facts don't care about feelings, that might be great for the political sphere. But that is not correct in Christianity or in how we are to treat others as we know Christ. We are to care deeply and immensely about them. We are to go out of our way for them. Sometimes we must present a hard defense of God's word and sometimes all we can do for someone is to tell them the truth. But if we have the opportunity to walk alongside someone in need of Jesus and show them through our actions just how much he loves them, we will find that we stand a much greater chance of success. In other words, no one was argued to heaven, but a great many, right here, have found themselves powerless to defend themselves against the onslaught of God's love. We cannot argue with someone and convince them they're wrong and then expect them to somehow be like, wow, thanks, dude. Thanks for yelling at me for that two and a half hours. Thanks for telling me that you don't care about my feelings or how I sense these things. Thank you for telling me that you don't care how much damage you do so long as you get that cancer out. Yeah, I might be missing a lung and a leg and an arm, but I should be thanking you for taking out that gallstone. We are to care immensely about them because, again, the greatest tool in the hand of a Christian to truly make a change is a relationship built around God's love. If I want to show someone that Christianity is different. The best way to do that is to be patient and kind and loving and humble. To be someone that they can count on and to genuinely show how much I care for them. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like to listen to more messages like this, you can find us on Spotify and iTunes by searching for Thousand Hills Podcast. Thank you for listening to and supporting this ministry of Thousand Hills Church.